The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. And welcome to the show today. I'm Carol Bossert, and this is The Museum Life. And I am thrilled to have as our guest today, Susie Wilkening, uh, to talk about cultivating the curious learner. Susie works with Reach Advisors, which is a, a strategy and research uh, organization, and it works with some of our nation's most innovative and community-driven enterprises, including museums and other cultural institutions. Welcome, Susie. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here today. Susie, would you tell us a little bit more about what you specifically do at uh, Reach? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I very much take the mindset of why does somebody choose on a Saturday afternoon or a Tuesday morning to visit a museum over the hundreds or thousands of other possibilities they can use to fill that day? What motivates somebody? What are those things that they tell us that motivates them about visiting and choosing museums over other things? And how do they find those museum experiences to be or not be meaningful in their lives? Wow. So what are some of the techniques that you use to get the answer to that question? Um, it's not always easy. I mean, we do ask people pretty explicitly, why did you visit this museum today? And they tend to give answers that fit into some some main categories of things like, it's a great thing to do with my children, um, or it's a good learning opportunity for my children. That's one that comes out of parents a lot. Um, or for adults who might be coming without young children, they might say, I came here to learn something. Or they might say, I've come here to it's something nice to do with my spouse or my friend or my, um, you know, somebody that's important to them in their lives. Some of them tell us it's just fun, and we like to hear that answer. Um, and then, you know, sometimes they give us more meaningful answers as well, but those answers are few and far between. It tends to fall in those broad categories at first. Um, we also have, a, you know, there's a category for people who, who go to museums uh, on vacation, and they have different motivations. That's part of the you know, sense of place of visiting Paris or visiting Chicago or whatever the place might be. So we, we, we tend to get that category of, of, well, more the cultural tourist visitor. To get at what is most meaningful about museums, 
That's a much trickier question, and if you ask somebody straight out that question, it's very difficult generally for them to answer. Um, so we try to understand what makes a museum meaningful by asking people about the most meaningful experiences they've had in museums. And that suddenly makes it much easier for them to respond to because they think about those experiences that a lot of museum visitors have had that just really stand out in their minds. You know, that time standing in the Holocaust Museum and seeing, I believe it's a pile of shoes, um, that's, that stands out. Or it might be coming around the corner of an art museum and seeing a painting that they didn't expect to see there and just being blown away by that aesthetic experience of seeing that one painting that is somehow meaningful in their lives. Um, so, so if I, so if I understand, well, so if I understand correctly, what you're saying is it, it's difficult for most people to answer an abstract question about meaning. Yeah. You know, what's what's yeah. meaningful? You know, why you you could ask me why I like to take walks in the woods, and I could tell you the same thing. It's 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 fun, uh, or I like to do it with my spouse, or right. uh, something like that. But 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 so your job is to then ask people to give you back their actual museum story or your, the museum experiences, and then I'm assuming you have to take all of those stories and see what common threads you find. Exactly. Like, like your example of the woods, yes, you would give me those answers, but then I might turn around and go, I want to understand why you're picking the woods over taking a walk into a downtown area or taking a walk in a landscaped park of some sort. Um, you know, why, or why a walk at all? Why can't you do something else with your, your spouse? Um, so you know, the museum experiences that we collect, and we've now collected literally thousands, we do then sift through them and meticulously analyze each one and try to understand the patterns that emerge so that we can understand how museums do create meaning for people and help museums use those techniques not to change the message of the museum necessarily, but to change how the message is conveyed to visitors so it's most meaningful to visitors. So of all all of the various motivations that that people have, you know, and, and I know you've sort of set aside and we can set aside for a moment the, the vacationer. You know, yes. who is going to uh, go someplace once and learn about a city or uh, uh, an area. But so what it, what's the one thing? I, I, I know in our business we like to characterize people in lots of different ways. You know, we characterize them by age and by uh, where they live and, and maybe even their socioeconomic background. Uh, but what are some of the ways that you characterize visitors? Well, those are all really important ways to characterize visitors as well. Age, life stage, socioeconomic background all matter in terms of, of that visitor and why they're coming and what their motivations are. But those only get us so far. So one of the main ways that we tend to look at visitors is really understanding what is that deep seated motivation that they don't necessarily articulate, though some do, but most don't. And the one that we are finding to be the most important is having a very 
to take language out of, I guess, the fitness world, a very well-toned curiosity muscle. Um, you know, that inner drive to be to understand the world, to understand their place in the world, to understand their community and why their community ticks the way it ticks, and to understand why things have happened the way they've happened and how that might affect the future. This is this inner drive of curiosity to understand these things to help make a better future for themselves or for their community that seems to be the most important motivation and segment that we see. But we don't see this in all museum visitors. Um, what we're looking at, uh, and it's hard to quantify this, this trait of, of this very well-toned curiosity muscle, is that among regular visitors to history and art museum, about a quarter are what we would say are absolutely what we call curious learners, people who are just so super curious, so they may not use the word curiosity to describe themselves. And about another quarter have some traits of it. But when you think about uh, other types of museums or you look at the general population, it's a much smaller percentage. Well, I find that very fascinating. I, I never would have considered uh, uh, something in my brain, you know, like my curiosity, as having <clears throat> relating to my, my physical activity, you know, my ability to run or... Uh, my ability to do Pilates, which I don't do well, or yoga uh, that I'm trying to do. It sounds to me, just to, to use that, uh, follow that up, that metaphor uh, a little bit more, uh, is that not, so not everyone in society has the same toned curiosity muscle. Uh, right. They may not use it as much. Uh, but I'm assuming that, uh, as also just you following up on that metaphor, that everyone has the ability to yes. be curious. Yes. We did some very, very intense one-on-one -on -one work with 55 what I would call curious learners um, in the past few months. And it was pretty universal when, we, when we, we, we spoke with these, these individuals, and these were museum goers who just really are these curious individuals, the sense of this is something that every person is born with. And every, you know, think about a, a two-year-old and how curious that two-year-old is about the world, or even a, you know, a three-year-old or a one-year-old. It's very, very well-toned when someone's born. But if it's not exercised regularly, it can atrophy. And we can even see atrophy. And this, I'm going further than our 55 curious learners that we worked with um, to our broader work. It can even atrophy by the time somebody's entered first grade. And you see first graders who are just not engaged with school or interested in learning as much as other first graders. So we're starting to see signs of it as early as first grade, maybe even earlier. Oh, that's quite... Yes? Well, I was going to say, that's a terrible uh, statement to be made about uh, 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 school learning, if, uh, if that's the possibility where, where there, you're finding a real shift in loss of curiosity. Right, and, and some of these children are coming in with already having, starting to atrophy that curiosity muscle. 
So I'm not going to say the schools have done it to them. Um, so I will say that it's something that, you know, it's coming out of their environment that's not exercising that muscle. And so once they get to school, it's just not and well-toned, and it's not having that, that appetite for learning that we other kids who have a well-toned curiosity mus- muscle can have. Um, and then, you know, it goes on into adulthood. So if we look at adults, we have adults who come to museums all the time, who have very well-toned curiosity muscles, who have never lost it. And then we have other adults who it's not as well-toned, um, and, you know, they are not... You know, visiting museums, they may not be as civically engaged. They may not be as strong of critical thinkers. Um, they may not have as much cultural literacy. And they may not be as creative as as curious learners in their lives. But they may still be good, solid citizens of our communities. Um, or they may not be, but it's just they don't have that inner drive of curiosity driving their activities to such a heavy extent as our curious learners. But it's a muscle, and what we're looking at is if it's a muscle, it can atrophy, but it can also come back. Yes, I I was just thinking the same thing. One of the things that that, uh, science has taught us in the last couple of years about the brain is that it isn't uh, just something that grows at a certain stage and then stops growing, but that that we're learning that we can continue to build our our brain capacity. Uh, We're learning a lot with uh, Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. uh, patients and and others that there are ways that we can really uh, reduce signs of, of aging and atrophy. So I'm assuming that, that there's probably some good news there for uh, uh, general curiosity as well. I would assume so as well. I mean, I am not a scientist. I am not a, a medical practitioner of any sort, but I do review um, to some extent as best I can some of the medical literature coming out. And there's a lot of it coming out around Alzheimer's and dementia-related diseases, but also among older adults in general, which indicate that those older adults, you know, post-retirement, who keep that engagement with their community, who volunteer or who are lifelong learners and actively pursue lifelong learning, which is a good indicator of having that that well-toned curiosity muscle, are the ones who live healthier lives, and they also live longer, and can ward off some of those stages of dementia longer than individuals who don't pursue those types of things. Now, there's a lot of other factors that tend to go into this. There's a strong correlation between curiosity and socioeconomic status. Um, wow. Well, let let me stop you right there okay. because I, I think we've got a, a, a real great conversation going on and you made so many points uh, that I want to be able to follow up on them with our listeners. So we're going to take a break right now. Uh, you are listening to The Museum Life with Carol Bossert and my guest today, Susie Wilkening, and I hope that you stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. 
Join Gary Ray with his co-host Linda Crater and other prestigious co-hosts as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and, of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to radio show at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to The Museum Life. Today with me is my colleague and friend, Susie Wilkening. Susie works for Reach Advisors, and her research focuses on why people go to museums, what motivates them, what, why, why would they make that decision on a Saturday afternoon to go to a museum. Right before break, we were talking a little bit about curiosity. And Susie, you were talking, uh, I, I am still just uh, uh, excited and thrilled and I almost uh, ticklish uh, looking at this idea of curiosity is a like a well-toned muscle and uh, the brain of course is a muscle we're learning that, that through science and we're also learning that uh, like any other muscle we can let it go flabby or we can tone it up so let's talk a little bit based on your experience and research how can we tone up that curiosity muscle that's a good question, and I'm not sure that I can give a great answer to it because of where we are in our stage of research. Um, we have identified this segment of the population that we call these curious learners, and I have identified their traits. We're looking at what they believe made them those curious learners, but we haven't had a chance yet to really start looking at what can we do to cultivate more of them among the adult population to help them tone up that muscle. There are things that we are beginning to suggest to museums that they do to think about making more meaningful experiences, which might help drive curiosity um, among their adult visitors. But we haven't started looking at specifically if those things have direct causation towards increasing that curiosity muscle. That's a great project that we're hoping to do um, in the near future, but we're just not quite there yet. But we do see that people who do have these traits tend to be those people who might identify themselves as a history buff or an, somebody who just absolutely loves art um, or a science geek. They might use that terminology. Um, 
there are individuals who might be news hounds, um, and just, you know, they show these traits. And the question is, if we just throw more of those kinds of that information at people, is that it? Or do we have to really think about how we present that information and lead them to want to know more and help tone up that muscle? You know, Susie, I find that very interesting, and I know you don't have all the research data, but uh, in my own practice as an interpretive planner, this is always the real challenge in developing a museum exhibit. Um, you know, there, there's one one side that says, well, really, all we need to do is make you know, keep it organized and 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 show a showcase an interesting topic, and it's almost as if you're saying those curious learners will figure it out. They are motivated yeah. to making their own meaning. Uh, if the exhibit designer, you know, puts something in a in a far corner and the lighting isn't really good. Well, they're forgiven because that curious learner is going to go after it. Uh, and But we've got that other, it seems to me that we may have another you know, segment where they're semi-curious or they're, they're curious learners in waiting. Is that fair to say? That, I think that, that's and, fair to say. And so maybe some of these things that, and, and, and again, I'm just talking about exhibits because that's my area of expertise. Um, you know, if, if we sweat those details, if we make sure that we don't stick something in the far corner and we make sure that our, that our labels are, are vibrant and beautiful and easily read to each other and shared and maybe, uh, lest we say, are fun and entertaining and, 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 and engage people uh, to share these, these, these things, maybe we can move the curious learner and training to be a little more curious. Well, exactly. And we, what we're looking at among art and history museum visitors is that 50% of those regular visitors don't show any of these traits of curiosity. They're coming for other reasons. So it's addressing those other reasons and making sure that they are fulfilled and then extending it and, and, and in an engaging manner to create that meaning that hopefully will start toning up that muscle. Now, unfortunately, what we see in science museums and other types of museums um, is we see even fewer of those regular visitors having a well-toned curiosity muscle. This is largely in part due to who visits those museums. If you think about a science museum, we have a very different constituency than we have from an art or a history museum. Um, we do see fewer curious learners among parents with young children, for example, than we see among uh, adults without children in their lives who visit museums regularly. So that may be the, the driving factor that makes the job even harder for a science museum to help adults flex that curiosity muscle a bit when they're coming in not showing those traits and have, having very specific other motivations that also have to be addressed. Whereas that curious learner, they'll figure it out for themselves largely. Make it easier for them, they'll figure out even more, though. Ah, so it's like so many things in life. You really need to put on your, your uh, uh, air mask before you help others. 
uh, when yeah. you're on the airplane. It's, yes. that's, yes. that's what it, that's it's a great way of putting it, especially for parents with young children. Well, let's talk about, well, let's talk about, uh, parents and, and young children for a minute. It just, you know, when you were talking about, uh, you know, how curious learners describe themselves and, uh, you know, they, you were talking about, well, they describe themselves, they're history buffs or science geeks. Well, that really struck a chord for me because my, my father was a businessman, but boy, he was a history buff. And when I was growing up, we would go camping all across the country, and we would always stop at the the local uh, Civil War memorial. And I, I have, at the time, not fond, but actually very fond memories of my father reliving the battles from absolutely every vantage point at <laughs> Gettysburg and Vicksburg and 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 even later that night we would be having dinner and he would say okay the gravy boat well that's Lee's Lee's army and and this salt shaker is someone coming you know another group coming up and he would he I thought you know I grew up I thought I hated history but of course it was really that love of doing something with my dad that he loves so very, very much. That probably is one of the reasons why I chose a, a career in museums. Uh, so, you know, I'm just, I, so I think my dad was probably teaching me curiosity without even knowing it. And that's something that we do see among curious learners is that when we did that deep work with the 55 individuals this, earlier this year, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them had one or more individuals in their lives that almost served as a curiosity mentor and modeled that behavior. And they have very, very thoughtfully and explicitly cultivated that behavior in, into that individual as a child. So the, the role model is really important for the development of a curious learner from early childhood because that's how curiosity really gets exercised and continues to be exercised when in other children it might be starting to atrophy without that exercise. So it's often apparent um, for you as your father. Um, I suppose for me it was my mother. Um, and... It can also be a grandparent. It can also be uh, an aunt or uncle or a teacher or, in one case, uh, it happened to be a pharmacist in rural Pennsylvania that gave this child that, I, as an adult, I interviewed um, the ingredients for gunpowder so he can make his own gunpowder and do his own chemical experiments. But it's somebody who takes that role in some way, shape, or form that tends that overwhelmingly helps cultivate and flex that curiosity muscle in young children. It doesn't always have to happen, though. There's a, there were a couple of our curious learners who did not have that person in their lives, and they said, well, we, you know, we became curious despite that we didn't have that, and it wasn't encouraged. But overwhelmingly, there needs to be somebody. So putting this back, uh, you were talking about science science museums a minute ago, and you know those also are are an institution that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, uh, being a, a self uh, self serving science geek in my own way, um, but uh, I, you know I I I have 
um, I have I had a great diff I had a great deal of difficulty taking my son to science museums. Uh, part of it is my my son has a uh, a bit of a learning disability, and so we found science museums a bit frenetic. And uh, try as I might to you know, sort of cut through the the gizmos and the bells and the whistles, uh, it was easier for him if we would go to a quieter museum, if we went to an art museum. Uh, but but having uh that aside what is then the 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 challenge with curious learners or what is the deal with curious learners in science museums it's almost like they sort of you know suck the life out of the curious learner or the curious mentor and i'm wondering why that is well there's two different things going on oh there there are related and build off of each other and feed each other um one is that it's the nature of science. Um, science is very fact-driven and process-driven. And our curious learners do appreciate that. And they may ap- appreciate that science in our lives. But when there's a, such a sole focus on facts, it sucks the humanity out of science. And there's still a lot of humanity in science because science affects humans. And we all respond to science in different ways. So one of the things that we're looking at is, well, how do we put the humanity back into science without taking away its fact-based nature? Because we don't want to take away the fact-based nature. That's what science is. But how do we bring the humanity back in that people, as they learn about science in a science museum, have a greater opportunity for their empathy to be engendered and to have that emotional connection and have a more meaningful experience versus one that's very factual. That's part of it going there because if that human condition that is so complex isn't reflected back to visitors, those curious learners tend not to be as engaged. Um, The other part with science centers is the audience as it is now is overwhelmingly families because that's who goes to science museums because it's good for their children. And they often are more interested in the fact-based nature of it, so their children learn those building blocks of science. Of course, as they're you know, wanting this, that's taking away from that empathetic nature of the human experience that we want to focus on as well. So that's how we, we have this, this tension between these two audiences. So what we see with families is because families tend to come with a primary motivation of something to do with their children, their kids are going to learn something, um, or it's, it's fun for their kids to do all those interactive things, or it's a good place for family time, it's safe, it's educational, then what we're seeing is that with the motivation being focused on outcomes for their children, we're not seeing whole family engagement, and we're not seeing the curiosity muscle getting flexed among the parents. And so that That, goes back to that air mask analogy that you made um, several minutes ago. Yes, yes. Okay, we're going to take another break, uh, and then we'll come back uh, and uh, have further conversation with Susie. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to The Museum Life. 
Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, this is Carol Bossert. You're listening to the Museum Life. Welcome back. Uh, I'm here with my guest, Susie Wilkening. And before I forget, please, uh, if you want to continue on this conversation, you can always reach me at my website, uh, carolbossertservices.com. You also may uh, want to reach uh, Susie at uh, reachadvisors.com. And know, too, that Susie is the editor of a blog called Museum Audience Insights, which I think will probably have a great deal more in the coming weeks and months and years about this idea of curious learners. Susie, before we were uh, we took our break, we were talking a little bit about how parents can almost inadvertently uh, stifle curiosity among their children, particularly if they go to a museum. And we just use the example of a science center, but we're not really trying to pick on science centers uh, particularly. But that they, uh, but that if a parent is going is taking their children to a museum because it's for their children's own good darn it, and you're going to learn something, darn it, uh, they can inadvertently telegraph a lack of curiosity. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. And we, we mentioned science centers in particular because they have a high density of these parents, uh, but we see them at museums of all types. Um, the mindset of the parent walking into that museum experience is probably the most important thing for an effective museum experience to take place. But when the mindset of the parent, in particular the mindset of the mom, because she's usually the one who takes her children to museums and dads don't tend to go as often, but we'll come back to dads, 
is that you know she's doing this because that's what good moms do. And to be a good mom and to raise good children, you take them to museums where they learn things and they have a good time. And, you know, they're having some family time as well. The challenge with that is that she, because it's for her children, she's visiting for her children, it takes her curiosity out of the picture. And if she's not modeling curious behavior in the museum, or if she's not having a good time because she's just doing this because it's good for her children, but not because she's interested necessarily in the subject matter, even though she's not saying anything to her children, she may be even encouraging her children to observe, participate, the kids still pick up on that. And they may subconsciously realize, mom's not having a great time. And this is the proper adult behavior in a museum. So they stop asking to come back because mom's not having a great time. And long-term, they may think in their minds, proper you know, museum behavior is stepping back and letting the kids do stuff while mom might be maybe just standing there or, at worst, sitting on the bench and texting or using her smartphone to do something completely different, which I have seen in museums myself as I visit them with my young son. So the behavior is not that we seek to have adults engage in in museums needs to be that of a curious learner to model that behavior so that the children also keep flexing that muscle and become that curious learner into adulthood. Now, I do mention moms specifically because moms are more likely than dads to exhibit this behavior. If you go to a museum on a weekday, generally what you see in terms of family units are moms and their children. You don't tend to see many dads. On weekends, you see a little, a few more dads, um, but still sometimes you'll see mom and the kids. It's something that mom seems to do with the kids. But when dads go on museum visits, the dads are much more likely than the moms to model curious behavior. There are a segment of moms that are very good modelers of curious behavior. There's a much larger segment of dads who go to museums who model that behavior. And there's something really special about a dad taking his children to a museum. And we've done a lot of memory work with adults who have remembered their childhood museum experiences. And what we tend to find is that while more individuals remember going to museums with their moms, because that's what moms do, the memories that, that included dads were much more detailed, much more evocative, much more meaningful to those adults, you know, 50 years later or 20 years later, however many years later. And it was even more important for boys to have had that experience with their fathers and girls. Well, that is uh, an amazing statement and probably could be expanded uh, in so many uh, areas of our society. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've often uh, told people the reason that I do what I do in creating museum exhibits is I'm trying to create safe places for parents and children to do things together because I think that in our workaday world, uh, it's so easy to, uh, you know, not take time with our kids or, or not you know, feel like we've always got a, a, a better, bigger or grander agenda, you know, to get dinner done 
done or get to the soccer game or uh, do our homework, that museum experiences can be those rare places, uh, unfortunately rare, where parents and children can do things together. And what, what, you're, what you're telling me is, is that, yes, but it still is up to the parent to lead that experience and make sure that it is a, bu- a good, positive, uh, and curiosity-building memory. And it's not easy. I mean, I, I hope that I'm one of those curious parents and I'm modeling that behavior for my young son. But I can tell you there are certain museum experiences that I'm that parent standing back because it's just not doing anything for me. But I can take my son into the Children's Museum messy play and interact with him for two hours, and we're both perfectly happy. So just for me, it's more I'm picking those experiences I know are going to engage me and bring my son with me to them and hope to cultivate his curiosity as I'm doing it. So when I'm thinking about my museum visits, in many ways, I'm coming first. I'm putting on my my own air mask first. And I'm saying, Mm -hmm. is this something that interests me? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to say, okay, I'm taking my son, and, you know, by darn it, he's going to find it interesting, too. (laughs) So I'm turning it around um, because... I'm taking my own interests into consideration. Now, I am an omnivorous learner. I enjoy science and history and art. I come from a history background, but I'm perfectly happy at a science museum or a botanical garden or a zoo. Um, But I'm choosing based on my own interests, and I'm hoping to cultivate that in my son. And if he bears off into something that I'm not interested in, then that's great. I still encourage it. Well, and I, I, I mean, I think curious people, I mean, that's what, what you were talking about before. Curiosity in some ways knows no bounds. And while I feel very comfortable in a science center or a natural history museum, because those are, those are areas that I, that I know very well from my educational background, I have learned over the years to become more curious about art, something that I never uh, uh, knew much about um, uh, prior to my my later adulthood but I'm now finding this as a as, as a new um, a, a new interest for me and a, a new sense of, of curiosity it I I want to just shift gears a little bit now, Susie, because we've we've touched in and around about uh, you know curious curious learners. We've talked about the importance of of uh, curious learners or curious mentors being people who are curious themselves, and they they can uh, model good uh, model good learning skills, and they can also just you know curiosity is I think is still infectious and uh, enthusiasm for something is infectious i'm wondering if if we can take this metaphor a bit further and talk about is there something called a curious museum i mean can you can you take that 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 feeling that that attribute of curiosity and begin to to look at museums i mean can museums imbibe curiosity and can can that help people uh, who are both curious and maybe curious in waiting, uh, uh, cultivate their own curiosity? Yes. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about it in two different ways. Um, first, in terms of adults, you know, any place that has unique attributes that share 
this seems like a dry way of putting it, to share knowledge or share information um, and cloak it through the human condition is well-positioned to engender empathy and, and to, to help flex that curiosity muscle. And museums have so many unique attributes that other institutions don't have to do that um, because they have things, interesting, fascinating, weird, bizarre, beautiful things. Um, you know, you, you can, and, and we get this from um, both visitors and non-visitors to museums a lot in our research, that you cannot truly experience a painting by, pick any master of painting that you want through a computer screen or a book. You really have to stand in front of the painting. You cannot replicate that experience anywhere else. Or um, we need to have objects that have what I call cooties, um, which are objects that might have been owned or been a part of some episode of history or owned by some individual that somehow have affected that object with the spirit of that individual, such as Thomas Jefferson's writing desk. And if you look at his writing desk, and you know it's his writing desk, that sets it apart from the other you know, 3,000 writing desks that look fairly similar to it for that time period and makes it special. And you can't see that anywhere else but in a museum. So it's t- taking these attributes that are so unique to museums, and I extend that to animals, especially in zoos, um, but also natural history museums, and pulling in that, that human condition around those, what those objects are and what they mean, yes, I think it, that, that does help to flex that muscle. Um, with children and the cultivation of children, we find something a little bit different, but not totally. We do find that the experiences that children have had in museums do lend themselves towards becoming that curious learner. It's a very common trait among curious learners to have had pretty wide exposure to museum experiences when they were children. Um, The experiences are object-based more than interactive, though interactive experiences are increasing in their um, proportion to the population. So an adult in their 20s is more likely to remember an interactive experience than an adult in their 70s, um, but they're also more likely to remember an object experience. We don't see interactive experiences taking the place of object-based experiences in museums in terms of memories, but complementing them. Um, so, it, so it seems to me that mu- what you're, uh, one of the take-home messages of, of what you're saying uh, is, is that museums have a unique role to play in our yes. society. Yes, because they have the things that, that have emotions attached to them in some way, shape, or form that people can relate to. And it's easier to relate to something viscerally when you see it than to read a description of it in a book. Um, there's a few other things that the curious learners also um, had in common in addition to museum experiences that um, they felt that fed their curiosity and those were library experiences, um, reading experiences, which were not necessarily related to a library. Um, they may have had a parent or a grandparent who's a big, just a big reader and modeled that behavior. Um, 
outdoor experiences, particularly nature experiences, and newspapers, the prevalence of newspapers in their lives as children and having that physical newspaper to flip through when they were walking past it on the dining room table and they were bored for, they flipped through it for a few minutes and that sparked something in them and having that experience over and over again. So there are other things that also contribute to curious learners, but museums have a very important role within within that group. So I I think as we close, uh, let's remember a couple of things from today. One is museums. You need to embrace your own curiosity and your own unique role that you play in our society to cultivate curiosity. And for those of us who want to continue to be curiosity mentors, we need to remember that the best mentors are the ones who are continuing to nurture their own curiosity. Again, Susie, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, It was a real pleasure. You can reach Susie at reachadvisors.com and also know that uh, you can read, uh, continue to read her thoughts on museum audiences' insights. And uh, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. Again, this is Carol Bossert for The Museum Life. Hope you join us next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 